Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Uh, our mini editorial today is written by Keith Pease of Sioux City, and Keith writes, Thank goodness the Tyson Event Center staff is more efficient enforcing the new clear bag rule than the taxpayer-supported customs officials at our country's borders. Safety first. Again, this was written by Keith Pease of Sioux City. I will now go to the five-day forecast, and today is a windy and colder with a high of 25 and a low tonight of 1 degree. Wednesday is going to have some snow with a high of 21 and a low of 6. Thursday will be colder still when it will snow during the night, and it will be a high of 11 and a low of 5. Friday will be cloudy, brisk, and cold with a high of 11 and a low of 1. And Saturday will be windy with some snow in the morning with a high of 8 and a low of minus 14. The leading story today is about the weather. Winter blasts hiss, hits Siouxland. As the first major snowstorm of the year bore down on the region on Monday, Sioux City Field Services Manager Patrick Simons said the city had all decks on hand. The National Weather Service in Sioux Falls was predicting that total snow accumulation could be as high as 8 inches in places. Simons said shortly before 11 o'clock on Monday, We have all of our equipment out on the roads right now, kind of trying to keep on top of everything the best we can. We will be out on the street 24-7 until the duration of this event. All area schools announced they would be closed on Monday due to the weather. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was scheduled to be in Sioux City for an event at Horizon Family Restaurant, but it was canceled. Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott declared a snow emergency, which began at 7 a.m. Monday. A snow emergency declaration prohibits parking or leaving a vehicle unattended on an emergency snow route street, noted by a blue and white sign with a snowflake. Vehicles were to park on the even-numbered side of the street beginning at 7 a.m. Monday. Beginning at 7 a.m. Tuesday, vehicles should be moved to the odd-numbered side of the street. The winter storm warning is set to expire at 6 a.m. Tuesday. Sergeant Bluff, North Sioux City, and South Sioux City also declared snow emergencies. Shortly before noon Monday, Sioux City Community Policing Sergeant Tom Gill said five crashes had been reported in the Sioux City Metro since 6 a.m. He said a few vehicles also became stranded in the snow on the roads, which he described as slick. He also said temporary stop signs were set up at the intersection of 4th Street and Floyd Boulevard after a semi took out a traffic light. He said, if you have to travel, try to avoid the downtown area because they work to try to get those streets first. If you can't, make sure you're driving slow and you're aware that there's going to be plows out. Simon says residents can help city plow crews out by staying off the roads as much as possible during the storm and adhering to the city's no parking policy. Since this is the first major storm of the season, Simon said the city is fully stocked with road salts and de-icing sand. We have no concerns of shortfalls, he said. The biggest thing for us is if you can kind of stay off the roads, give these guys some space. Don't tailgate them so they can't see you. Give them a little bit of a wide berth if they try if you need to pass them. Try and get off the street as far as parking is concerned so we can get the road surfaces cleared. Garbage and recycling pickup was delayed in Sioux City. Gill hauling advised trash would be picked up within 20 
within 48 hours of their regularly scheduled collection. Across the Missouri River in Dakota City, the Dakota County Courthouse shuttered its doors at noon due to old man winter and canceled a scheduled Board of Equalization meeting. An emergency meeting of the Board of Commissioners was slated to be held at 11 a.m. to approve payroll-related items only. The Sioux City Community School District decided to move their regular school board meeting from 6 p.m. to noon, while South Sioux City chose to postpone their school board meeting. As of Monday morning, Ann Westra, the City of Sioux City's Communications and Public Engagement Specialist, said the City Council meeting should be taking place as normal at 4 p.m. She said City Attorney Nicole Dubois and City Manager Bob Padmore advised that, by law, the meeting had to go on as scheduled. It was already posted. By law, you have to give 24 hours notice, Westra said. Our city attorney was kind of talking through some things, but as of right this moment, it's still go on for 4 o'clock, she said. And our next story is about a shooting at the Hard Rock Ramp. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is investigating an officer-involved shooting at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's parking ramp early Monday morning. Sioux City Community Policing Sergeant Tom Gill said no officers were seriously injured. There was one officer that had some minor injuries in the incident, but no one was seriously injured as far as the officers go. He declined to release any additional information about the shooting. Gill said the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is conducting an investigation and that a joint release of information will be forthcoming. The shooting occurred at 4 a.m. Monday in the parking ramp, which is located at 205 Pearl Street. Standing on the sidewalk on 3rd Street, several yellow evidence markers were visible lying on the pavement inside the parking ramp. A dark blue DCI truck marked crime scene unit was stationed on the street just outside the ramp's entrance. The parking ramp will be closed until the investigation is complete and the public should avoid the ramp until further notice, the department said in a statement released Monday morning. That's still closed off to the public right now because they're out there doing their investigation, Gill said shortly before noon. And yesterday, Monday, was the first day of the 2024 legislative session. And so we have some uh, report from that. Iowa's majority Republicans promised faster tax cuts and a continuation of the conservative agenda as they gaveled in for the first day of the 2024 legislative session on Monday. Republican and Democratic leaders made opening speeches laying out their priorities for the session, with many expressing their grief and calling for action after a deadly school shooting in Perry last week that left 11-year-old Amir Jalaf dead and seven others injured. The shooter also died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Republican leaders in the House and Senate promised to accelerate income tax cuts they passed in 2022 and expand business opportunities in the state. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer, a Republican from Grimes, compared Iowa's policies and fiscal standing to those in neighboring Democrat-run states Minnesota and Illinois, and he highlighted Iowa's fiscal health, noting the $2.1 billion state general fund budget surplus, which is projected to grow to $3.1 billion in the next fiscal year, 
plus another $3.7 billion in the state's taxpayer relief fund. Whitfer reiterated the call to accelerate the recent income tax cuts and pledged to reduce the number of state boards and commissions, a process already underway after it was included in Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' state government reorganization plan and studied by a legislative committee. The goal is to make government more efficient and help Iowans get to work faster, Whitfer said. In one sentence, here's the plan. Cut taxes, control spending, reform government, and let Iowans be great. Let's get to work. Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Jokum, a Democrat from Dubuque, described the principles that will guide Senate Democrats' work during the 2024 session. For every item that comes across our desk this session, we're going to ask three questions. Does it create more opportunity for Iowans? Does it ensure freedom for Iowans? Does it provide more accountability for Iowans? Jokum said. If the answer is yes, Senate Democrats are ready to work with Republican colleagues to get it done. If the answer is no, we are going to fight like heck against it and let the people of Iowa know why. Beyond tax cuts, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said lawmakers would look at improving public safety, making government more transparent and efficient, and reviewing standards of both lower and higher education in the state. House Democratic Leader Jennifer Confrist of Windsor Heights appealed to Republicans to work with Democrats on policy to address the needs of Iowans rather than pass bills approved and drafted solely by Republicans. The lawmaking process is generally dominated by Republicans, who hold a large majority in both chambers of the legislature. Democrats are generally not involved in drafting and making changes to bills, even when they are passed in a bipartisan fashion. How about this year? The fact that Democrats introduce a bill does not mean it's a bad idea automatically out of the gate, conference said. What matters most is that we build policies that Iowans will recognize and have better lives because of. We are here to serve Iowans. Lawmakers took a moment of silence and expressed their grief over the shooting at Perry High School last week. Grassley highlighted it as part of Republicans' commitment to improving public safety, while Democrats said the shooting shows the need for stronger gun control measures. Iowa school students in the Des Moines metro walked out on Monday and held a protest at the Capitol to demand stronger gun laws. House Speaker Pat Grassley said, People choose Iowa because our state is viewed as safe. So when we see these senseless acts of violence in our own home state, in our own schools, it shakes us to the core. In Iowa, every parent should be able to send their kids to school and trust that they should return home safely. Grassley did not say new gun restrictions would be on the list of policy responses to the shooting. Instead, he said Republicans would invest in school security, prioritize school resource officers, bolster children's mental health, and teach resilience over victimhood. He connected the push for safety in schools to Republicans' efforts to prohibit books with sexual contact from school libraries. Democrats also called for action in response to the shooting, including stricter gun control measures. Jokum said there is no pain like the pain of losing a child. In our grief, though, you must also ask tough questions and acknowledge hard truths. How do we tame violence in our country, violence that touched East High School here in Des Moines less than two years ago, and now Perry? The truth is we must address gun safety. When we must find a solution to gun violence, Jokum said, no child should go to school fearing for their lives, but today millions do. Gun safety should not be a partisan issue. Protecting kids should not be a partisan issue. It's time for us senators to come together and find real solutions.
Whitford praised law enforcement officials and emergency responders who acted during the shooting. He appeared to indicate Senate Republicans will not be considering gun safety legislature. While we cannot legislate away evil and get rid of all the bad things in this world, we will keep our thoughts and prayers with those in Perry as we move forward and put in place policies to make our state better and stronger, Whitford said. It is impossible to find words to appropriately convey the sorrow and the sympathy we have for the victims of the shooting, but the people of Perry should know that we share in their grief and support them at this time. Speaking at a Republican breakfast reception before the session began, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said lawmakers would work with the community as it continues to heal from the tragedy. Reynolds said, We continue every day to keep the families of the victims in the Perry community in our prayers. We will continue to work with the community to make sure that they have the whole government behind them as we work through this heartbreaking time in our state's history. Student activists with the March for Our Lives group rallied in the Capitol Rotunda and then marched to deliver a letter to Reynolds' office, demanding the state pass gun safety measures. Their proposals include allowing law enforcement to temporarily take guns from individuals experiencing a mental health crisis, preventing gun ownership of an individual convicted of certain crimes like stalking, and requiring the reporting to law enforcement of any lost and stolen firearm. Trey Jackson, the legislative director of March for Our Lives Iowa, said, Our hearts are heavy today and our prayers are with everyone in Perry. Still, nothing has been done. Uh, he, he said that as he read the letter to Reynolds during the Capitol rally. Iowans have had enough of prayers. We need action. You, Governor Reynolds, have the power to create meaningful lives. You have the power to save more lives from being senselessly stolen in this state. Grassley doubled down on the House Republicans' efforts to remove books with sexual content from public schools and said Republicans may pass additional legislation to clarify or expand on the existing law. In December, a federal judge temporarily blocked much of a law passed last year. Senate File 496 banned books that depicted or described any of a list of sex acts from public schools and prohibited teaching about gender identity and sexual orientation before seventh grade, among a host of other regulations. Grassley said he was shocked that we actually have people willing to fight this hard to keep pornographic material in our home schools. The language of the law has led school districts to remove works from, of classic literature like Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five and George Orwell's 1984. Opponents of the law, including civil rights groups and legislative Democrats, say it is overly broad, impedes on the First Amendment rights of students and teachers, and discriminates against LGBTQ students. It should have been an easy policy for schools to implement, but instead some chose to politicize this issue, and if we need to pass additional legislation this session, we will, Grassley said. At the Republican breakfast reception, a speaker after speaker toted delivering a conservative agenda that includes lowering taxes, providing taxpayer funding for school for families to pay for private school expenses, and strengthening parental involvement and steering away from progressive social issues in school curriculum related to instruction on gender identity and social, sexual orientation. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said at the event, I could not be more proud of the accomplishments that we achieved since we were able to achieve the trivecta. You know collectively, you truly are making a difference for Iowans and the policies, and most importantly, the results have captured America's attention, from tax cuts to cutting government and red tape to growing the economy.
We saw nearly $4 billion of capital investment in our state last year in 2023. From educational freedom to universal school choice to protecting life, this Republican team has delivered time and time again on the promises that we made to Iowans. Reynolds urged lawmakers to continue to challenge the status quo and continue to empower Iowans and really continue to maintain the bold and decisive leadership that Iowans have come to expect from our Republican leaders. We are excited about this legislative session, she said. We've got a great story to tell. We've got a lot to be proud of, and we do have more work to do. We now move to the um, regular column of called Five Questions With, and this today is with Dr. Jim Hegvik. Uh, about sem semaglutide, the weight loss medication. And this um, was written by Mason Doc. Probably the most talked about drug in 2023 was Ozempic, the diabetes drug that was found to have weight loss effects. Ozempic, a brand name, the drug itself is called semaglutide, took on a life of its own with intensive media coverage, social media chatter, and its own cheeky vitamin O. The New York Times reported in August that Ozempa maker Novo Nordisk was likely responsible to two-thirds of the economic growth of Denmark in 2022, and, that's, and Denmark is where the company is based. For all the light-hearted and oddball Ozempic-related news, there were a few serious but positive revelations, including reports that the related drug Regovi another brand name, the drug itself is still semaglutide, could slash the risk of heart trouble and stroke. Dr. Jim Hegvik, a surgeon with Dakota Dunes Bay Sinos who does bariatric surgery, spoke about semaglutide. Questions and answers have been edited for clarity and length. So the first question was, I understand you've recently begun prescribing weight loss medication. Can you tell me a little bit about the decision to start prescribing it? So we primarily prescribe semaglutide. It's the weight loss medication that we use. The big thing that we wanted was, you know, we deal a lot with weight loss discussions in the office. And not only as a bariatric surgeon, but also as a general surgeon. Sometimes people come in and for their hernia repair to be more beneficial, they need to be down 30 or 40 pounds. And they may not be necessarily interested in weight loss surgery, but they're certainly interested in having their surgery be more beneficial for them. And then on the weight loss side, on the bariatric side, we have patients that maybe weren't ready to commit fully to weight loss surgery. So this gives them a good avenue to help them and would start those discussions. Have you been hearing a lot of interest from patients about these new weight loss medications? I think nationally, if you follow the news, you see a lot of it. And then we see a lot on the patient side. We have people come in. Sometimes the orthopedic surgeons will send us patients for discussions about weight loss. And they're not necessarily ready to commit to surgery, but they're looking at something for an option. And so this really is a good avenue to help them. It's not going to be as much weight loss as a weight loss surgery itself, but it can certainly be beneficial. One caveat is that if they stop the medication, they have a chance of regaining their weight, where with weight loss surgery is probably going to be more robust. And then the next question, what is the criteria for a patient to use these medicines? For us, we don't have necessarily a BMI a body mass index index cutoff. In weight loss surgery, we do have to have a BMI greater than 35 or 40, depending on if you have a 
comorbid, comorbid condition like high blood pressure, high cholesterol. For weight loss medications, we don't have a certain set limit. Now, obesity is a diagnosis of a BMI over 30. It's probably where we would if you had to cut off, where a cutoff would be. But if somebody wants to come in and they just want some help with appetite suppression, I don't think there's necessarily a certain criteria they'll have to follow. It's just, can they tolerate the medication? And we're not going to give it to people that don't need any weight loss. They have to classify as overweight or obese to get it. And then the next question. Does health insurance reliably cover these medications? And if not, do you anticipate that these medicines will be more widely covered in the future? It's covered mostly for diabetes control. That's where it was first discovered is in diabetic management. They were finding these patients were getting good glycemic or blood sugar control, but they were also losing weight. The weight loss aspect of it is not as well covered by insurance and so we don't actually run it through insurance because it's quite difficult to get it covered. It's not impossible but it takes quite a bit of legwork to do that. So we try to really minimize the cost to the patient to make it doable for them without insurance. But for us we don't run it through insurance. It have to be if you have diabetes and then you can get it covered by going through your primary care doctor. And then the next question What are the relative advantages and disadvantages of weight loss drugs compared to surgery? They do go hand in hand. I think the advantage of the weight loss medication is, is it something that you can stop at any point. And within a week or two, you're probably going to be feeling pretty much back to normal. Once you've had weight loss surgery, you can't really reverse that. Now, with weight loss surgery, you're going to lose more weight and it's probably going to more sustainable with something that you won't, don't necessarily have to take for years on end. I think there's times when I have patients that need weight loss surgery, but they maybe don't qualify because their BMI is too high. This may be a medication to help get to that point. And some people don't need as much weight loss as what weight loss surgery would cause. So it's somebody that maybe needs 30 to 40 pounds of weight loss. This medication can really help them. They do cause some side effects that most of the time can be mitigated with just paying attention to them and monitoring your dose, such as like constipation or nausea, can be pretty prominent in some of these patients. And if people have a really bad heartburn or reflux and are overweight, these medications may make that a little bit worse. So weight loss surgery may be a better option for them to help them not feel those effects and still get the same results. And again, this was the five questions with Dr. Jim Hegvik on uh, weight loss medication. Ex-Kingsley Police Chief gets jail, probation, and stalking case. After seeing another man leave his ex-girlfriend's home, James Dunn said he was hurt. While serving as the police chief in Kingsley, Iowa, he then illegally used his position and city computers to search law enforcement databases for information about his ex-girlfriend, her new boyfriend, and the boyfriend's roommate. I'm ashamed of what I've done, abusing the system like that. I was just looking for answers. I just made a mistake, Your Honor, and I'm asking the court for some leniency, Dunn said Monday at his sentencing hearing. Dunn, 55, pleaded guilty in October in Plymouth County District Court to six counts of unauthorized access to or dissemination of intelligence data all Class D felonies, and three counts of misconduct in office, all serious misdemeanors.
In his more than 20 years on the bench, District Judge Jeffrey Neary said he had never seen such a case, and it bothered him to see a police officer use his position to stalk an ex-girlfriend, especially at a time when law enforcement officers' actions are under increased scrutiny. These things detract from the hard work law enforcement officers do, Neary said of Dunn's case. I don't believe I can ignore what happened and the impact on the victims. A pre-sentence report from the state probation office recommended Dunn be placed on probation. Neary deviated from that somewhat, sentencing Dunn to 30 days in jail for the three misdemeanor charges. Neary deferred judgment on the six felonies and placed Dunn on the three-year probation. Neary said he was willing to craft an order so Dunn's jail time would not affect his work schedule at his new job at a Sioux City meatpacking plant. Neary also ordered Dunn to continue with mental health counseling and extended an order that Dunn have no contact with the victims for five years. As part of a plea agreement, ten other charges, including two for stalking, were dismissed. Dunn was arrested February 15th by the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Agents, who had been notified by Hinton, Iowa police officers of complaints about Dunn following his ex-girlfriend and leaving notes for her and her boyfriend. The DCI investigation revealed that Dunn used Kingsley Police Department computers several times from November 2022 through February 2023 to search law enforcement databases for information about his ex-girlfriend, her boyfriend, and his roommate. Dunn and the woman broke up in November, and when he learned she was seeing another man in Hinton, he began following or searching for her, prompting her to tell him not to contact her. The woman reported that on February 6th, Dunn had left an anonymous letter that included descriptions of his sex life with a woman taped to her boyfriend's front door. He also described watching his ex-girlfriend and her boyfriend having dinner the night before. The woman contacted Hinton Police, telling them she was afraid of Dunn and that he was armed at all times. Dunn had served as Kingsley Police Chief since February 1st, 2022. He was initially placed on administrative leave after his arrest and later resigned. Neary said his sentence will prevent Dunn from serving as a law enforcement officer in Iowa again. One injured in Sioux City house fire. One person was taken to a hospital Monday after a house fire broke out on the city's near north side. According to the Sioux City police log, firefighters responded to the fire at 1114 Jennings Street at 624 a.m. The home, which sustained heavy fire and smoke damage, was red tagged by city officials. As firefighters worked to extinguish the blaze, heavy smoke and flames were observed coming from the second floor of the white two-story home, which was occupied at the time of the fire. We did transport one occupant to the hospital to get him checked out, said Assistant Fire Chief Kevin Kaler, who said the cause of the fire is under investigation. There were no other occupants or pets inside the home at the time of the fire. Firefighters responded to the fire as a snowstorm began to blanket the area. The city of Sioux City declared a snow emergency ahead of the storm, which was expected to dump several inches of snow. Conditions like this, they definitely tax our people and our equipment, Kaler said. We are just lucky that it's not any colder than this right now. Sioux City District to purchase 15 electric buses. The Sioux City Community School District has received a $5.9 million grant for electric buses and charging stations. The grant is from the Environmental Protection Agency's Clean School Bus Program. It will provide the district with 15 electric buses and infrastructures for charging stations. This is huge for our district, says Superintendent Rod Earlywine.
Sioux City is one of the first school districts to receive the grant, which will help selectees purchase over 2,700 clean school buses in 280 schools across 37 states, according to an EPA news release. The grant was created as part of President Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure plan law, providing a $5 billion to change the nation's school buses to electric buses, compressed natural gas and propane buses, according to the release. The funding will be distributed throughout the nation until 2026. There are 67 applicants selected to receive nearly $1 billion total in this grant cycle. So far, the program has awarded nearly $2 billion for 5,000 electric and low-emission school buses nationwide. And now we have a section called Overheard in the News, which is uh, quotes from various newsmakers. The first one is from Republican Party of Iowa consultant Patrick Stewart on the verification process of the caucus votes. We are not changing votes. We are not entering votes here. We are simply verifying that the results that we receive match what we would expect from precincts across the state to make sure that we don't see anything out of the norm. And then Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on her opposition to a federal food assistance program for low-income children. And she said, an EBT card does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic. And then the next one is from U.S. District Court Judge Stephen Loker, writing in an order blocking an Iowa state law that prohibits books with descriptions of sex acts and instruction and gender identity in elementary schools. He said, the sweeping restrictions in Senate File 496 are unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under any standard of scrutiny and thus may not be enforced while the case is pending. And then from the SAC County Sheriff's Office in a statement in, about the investigation into the disappearance of wall-like truck driver David Schultz. And they said, the SAC County Sheriff's Office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation have and are using every resource available to us. We have not and will not release details of this investigation while it is ongoing, which leads to wild speculation that we are not doing anything. This could not be further from the truth. And then um, from Sioux City Police Sergeant Tom Gill, warning residents to not leave cars idling and unattended in the winter. Over the two-hour stretch between 5 to 7 a.m. on December 14th, the police received four reports of stolen vehicles, and he said each one was left running with the keys in the ignition. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 9th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to the obituaries. Catherine Joyce Kathy Wingert, 76, of rural Bronson, passed away on Saturday, January 6th, peacefully in her sleep. A memorial service will be at 2 p.m. Thursday, January 11th at the Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel with refreshments and fellowship to follow. Visitation with the family present will be an hour prior to the at the funeral home. A commitment ceremony will be held at a later date off the shores of Hawaii. Online condolences may be offered to the family at the Meyer Brothers Chapel's website. Memorials may be offered to St. Jude Children's Hospital or Noah's Hope in the in Kathy's name. Catherine was born on May 26, 1947 in Hutchinson, Kansas, to George H. and Martha Lou Faldsalos. 
Born to a military family, Kathy moved to Hawaii, West Virginia, and Iowa. She received her education at Central High School in Sioux City, graduating with the class of 1965. She continued her education at Briarcliff University, studying art and psychology. Kathy married Dwight Wingard on January 21st, 1967 at the Cathedral of the Epiphany in Sioux City and moved to the family farm outside Bronson. The couple enjoyed 56 wonderful years. During her working career, Kathy was a medical unit secretary at the St. Joseph Hospital in Sioux City, followed by her medical secretary position at Family Health Care of Morningside until her retirement. She enjoyed her membership in to Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Mobile, where she taught Sunday school, CCD classes, and was a Eucharist minister. After retiring, Kathy volunteered at Unity Point Hospital in the OB department, where she was a cuddler in the NICU. Michael L. Hansen, 59, of Merrill, Iowa, passed away peacefully on Saturday, January 6. Private family services will be held. Arrangements are with the Waxwinkle Funeral Home in Lamar's. Maxell Spriggs, 88, of Kingsley, died Saturday, January 6. Funeral services will be 11 a.m. Saturday and visitation at 9 a.m. both on January 13th at Road Funeral Home in Kingsley. Memorials may be directed to your favorite charity in Maxell's name. Connie M. Savage Frokick of Walla Walla, Washington, a remarkable soul who touched the lives of all who knew her, passed away on January 2nd at the age of 51. She brought boundless joy, energy, and inspiration to everyone around her. Her verve and passion for life were infectious to anyone she met. Connie was a beacon of kindness, compassion, and unwavering love. Connie was born on May 1, 1972 to Colleen and Thomas Savage in Small Country Hospital in Cornfree, Minnesota, and grew up in Northwest Iowa, concluding her primary studies at Bishop Heelan Catholic High School, where she graduated in 1990. In her high school years, she explored various passions, including travel and pro-life activism. Connie pursued her undergraduate education at the University of St. Catherine, where she finished a triple major in international business and economics, philosophy, and French. During her undergraduate studies, she traveled and studied in France on two separate occasions, living both in Dijon and Rennes. During an internship in Dijon, she established connections with Colbrand Corporation in New York, where she was hired on as an executive assistant upon her return from France. This began 23 years at the company, based in New York area. Connie and Leo met at 1997 at a wine event at Times Square. After becoming engaged just days before 9-11, they were married in September 2002 at the Actors Chapel at St. Malachy's Church in Manhattan. In 2001, Connie began her MBA in international business at the City University of New York, Zicklin School of Business. Later in 2016, she completed the Master of Science in Marketing at Manhattanville College. Over the years, Connie and Leo grew their family, welcoming the first child, a daughter, Eleonora, in 2002. Shortly thereafter, Luca, their first son, was born in 2004. In 2007, they welcomed Amelia Joy to the family. Over the course of her career at Colbrand, she grew in responsibility and was ultimately promoted to Vice President, Director of Supplier Relations. During her tenure, she developed many 
important and deep relationships with the most talented and fascinating people in the wine and spirits industry. Her responsibilities had her traveling on a regular basis, and she worked extensively throughout South America, the United States, and Europe for the demands of the role. It was during one of these tra many travels that she first personally and professionally discovered Walla Walla in 2012 and promptly fell in love with the wine, terrain, and the people. At this time, Connie made a connection with La Cole Winery and the club family. This encounter was serendipitous as years later their paths would meet again. As fortune would have it, in 2018, Lacole was in search of a new general manager to replace the soon-retiring excellent manager, Debbie Froll. This opportunity was a perfect fit, and they promptly moved to Walla Walla. On September 1, 2018, she started her new position as general manager and chief operating officer, coinciding with the first day of harvest. While at Lacole, Connie reveled in her new dream job, carrying the flag for the winery, Walla Walla, and Washington State with pride. She also served on the executive committee for Walla Walla Valley Wine, a nonprofit wine industry membership organization. At home, Connie and Leo enjoyed their children in extensive gardening, having recently added a greenhouse dome to the effort. Being under the beautiful Walla Walla skies was one of the great joys of her life, whether gardening or showing esteemed wine critics vineyards of the valley. It was amidst these wonderful blessings of this new life in Walla Walla that Connie began to feel ill in July of 2022 and received a diagnosis by mid-September of pancreatic cancer. Her cancer treatment brought Leo and her to Texas before seeking most of her care in Portland and Walla Walla. If asked, Connie would call out the excellent care she received from many healthcare professionals, in particular wonderful nurses and helpful chaplains, and the unwavering support of family and friends which inspired her daily. Beyond her accomplishments, Connie was a cherished friend, a loving partner, and a devoted parent. She leaves behind a legacy of kindness and selflessness that will continue to shape our lives. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to Connie's family for a donation towards the efforts in pancreatic cancer research. A funeral mass to celebrate the life of Connie will be held on Saturday, January 13th at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Salix, Iowa. Viewing will be at 9 a.m. with a mass following at 10.30. Following this service, a burial will take place at West Fork Township Cemetery, located at Climbing Hill. Friends and family are welcome to join in honoring Connie and offering their final farewells. A celebration of life will be held in Walla Walla at 3 p.m. February 4th in nearby London, Washington. Everyone is welcome to attend, especially her wine industry friends and colleagues. As we say goodbye to Connie, let us remember her not with sadness, but with gratitude for the incredible gift of her presence in our lives. Rest in peace, dear Connie. Kevin J. Olson, 64, of Sini, Iowa, passed away on Friday, January 5th. Funeral services will take place at 2 p.m. on Thursday, January 11th at the Bauer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Pastor Jason Larson will officiate. Burial will follow at the West Haven Gardens in Lamars. Visitation will begin at 2 p.m. on Wednesday, January 10th at the Bauer Johnson Funeral Home. The family will be present from 5 to 7 p.m. Visitation will resume at 9 a.m. on Thursday. Donald Eugene Peters II 
71 of Mapleton died January 3rd. Memorial services will be at 7 p.m. January 17th, and visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Gossler Funeral Home Chapel in Ottawa. Darlene M. Barda, 95, of Sioux City, passed away Thursday, January 4th. Funeral will be at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 11th at Christy Smith Funeral Homes, Morningside Chapel, with visitation one hour prior. Michael E. Stevenson, 72, passed away Thursday, December 28th at his home in Sioux City. Memorial service will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 13th at Christy Smith Funeral Home, Morningside Chapel, with visitation one hour prior. Eugene Jean Kent, age 77, of Sioux Falls, passed away on Friday, January 5th at Sanford Hospice Foundation Cottage. Eugene Patrick Kent was born on February 17, 1946, in Sioux City to John and Genevieve Kent. He grew up in Jefferson, South Dakota, and graduated from Helan Catholic High School in 1964. After completing high school, he attended SDSU in Brookings. On February 15, 1969, Jean married Mary Jo, and they had six children together, Brad, Brian, Kevin, Angela, Jason, and Jennifer. Jean and Mary Jo later got divorced. In 1973, Jean and his family moved to Sioux Falls, where he started his insurance agency. Jean worked in insurance for over 50 years and never retired. He was devoted to his work, his church, and he also loved good food. A funeral mass will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 12th at Christ the King Parish, 1501 West 26th Street in Sioux Falls. A visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, January 11th, with a wake service followed by rosary beginning at 6 p.m. at Miller Funeral Home, located at 507 South Main Avenue in Sioux Falls. The burial will take place at Calvary Cemetery in Sioux City. We'll now move to the sports section. And the first story is about the Sioux City Musketeers. Gunderson Nets game winner. Playing in a jersey that doesn't yet have his surname affixed across the back, the newest member of the Sioux City Musketeers, Landon Gunderson, made sure everyone knew his name Friday night. It's kind of a tough look, Gunderson, 19, said of his uniform with a blank nameplate. It is what it is. And if the Madison Capitals didn't know then, they sure do now. Gunderson played 34 games for the Capitals between the 2021-22 and the 22-23 seasons. He found his way to Sioux City when the Musketeers acquired him from Green Bay on December 28th in exchange for a fourth-round pick in the USHL Phase 2 draft. In his third game with the Muskies, the six-foot, 190-pound Gunderson broke a 2-2 tie with less than five minutes remaining in the third period for what amounted to the game winner as Sioux City scored a 3-2 victory on its Hulk ice at the Tyson Events Center over Madison in a cross-division USHL contest. I'm very happy for Landon, said Sioux City head coach Jason Kirstner. We were playing a good game, just couldn't break through. But that for him to be the guy that scored there against his former team and get us the late game winner was awesome. After Gunderson won a face-off, he skated toward the goal and got it back with some space in front of the net and flicked a wrist shot past Madison goaltender Carson Musser. He was assisted by Riley Bruek and Alexi Van Houten Kacheru. Right off the face-off, my wingers really helped me out. 
Brooke made a nice pass, said Gunderson, a Western Michigan recruit who scored 80 goals in 30 games as a prep at Maple Grove High School, and uh, that's in Minnesota, in 21-22. I was trying to slip it back to Alexi, actual, actually, but luckily it happened to go in. I thought we outplayed them for most of the game, and Coach just preached to us what good that good things would come. It was good for me to get this first win in Sioux City. I think we have a good team to build around. Sioux City finished the weekend homestand 1-1 after dropping Saturday night's contest to Madison 4-3. With the win, Sioux City put more distance between itself and Waterloo for second place in the West. The Muskies remain in second place in the USHL Western Division with 42 points, 13 behind division-leading Fargo, and 7 ahead of third-place Sioux Falls. The Capitals boast the USHL's leading goal scorer in Austin Bruinbeck, who scored his 21st goal of the season on a Madison power play with 12.36 left in the second period. Bruinbeck, a St. Cloud State commit, was assisted by James Hong and Finn Brink. With five men on the ice, we did a nice job against them because those are some special players they have, Kirstner said. Through the first period was scoreless. Sioux City showed signs that a score was near as it's outshot Madison 13-7 to and had a number of near misses, including one off the post. We are, were in control of the game for most of the time. I liked our game a lot out here tonight, said Kirstner. Sometimes it just takes patience. Less than four minutes into the second period, Sioux City's Caden Shahan briefly pulled even with Brunovec in season goals when Shahan netted his 20th goal on a Muskie power play. The 18-year-old Yukon commit was assisted on the score by Max Strand and Ethan Gardula. Five minutes after Madison tied it at one, Colby Saganuk and Finn Loftus assisted a Tate Pritchard power play goal to put Sioux City in front again at 2-1. The Capitals pulled even once more, just under six minutes into the third, when Sam Rice scored a Jack Brandt and Ethan Elias-assisted goal. Ten minutes later, the nameless number 28 would put Sioux City in front for good, and everyone found out who Landon Gunderson is. Musketeers goalie Dylan Silverstein was stellar in net, as stopped 18 of 20 shots attempts faced. Musser came up with 27 saves for Madison, but took the loss after three Sioux City shots got through. Each side was penalized three times, and Sioux City's two power plays goals were one more than the Capitals could convert. We have to give Musser credit. He was one of the best players on the ice tonight, Kersner said. He made a ton of good saves, but I just liked our patience. We didn't get frustrated, and Landon scored a big goal for us. We stuck to our agenda pretty well, and the biggest thing was how we checked. They have a lot of good players, and we didn't give them much. When you make a mistake, that can make you pay. But the way we checked allowed us to possess the puck a little bit more. Our next um, story, sports story is Top Performers High School Basketball. As high school basketball teams enter the second half of the season after the holiday break, here's a look at the top 10 male and female performers from the past week in the journal's coverage area. We're going to begin with the boys. The Whiting Warriors. The team ended a 114-game losing streak that dates back to October of 2018 by beating Storm Lake St. Mary's 52-25. Junior Cole Bethune led the team with 18 points, and sophomore Caleb Glenn added 16 points to go with 7 rebounds and a team-high 8 steals. 
Junior Julian Rivas had the team high in rebounds with nine as the team moved to 1-9 on the season. Up until the win, the Warriors had only scored more than 30 points in one game this season. Fitzy Grant, Sioux City East. East improved to 8-2 on the season with a lopsided 83-38 win over Mason City at the Target Center in Minneapolis on Saturday. Grant, a 6'2 senior, led the Black Raiders with 16 points. Prior to that, East beat Fort Dodge by a near-equal outcome, with Grant 16 leading the way in that one as well. For the season, Grant's 13.8 points per game leads the team. Jesse Van Kalsbeek, MOC Floyd Valley. The Class 3A 8th-ranked Dutchmen have rattled off four straight wins and sit at 10-2 on the season after victories over Lamars and Okaboji since the calendar flipped to 2024. The 6'2 Northwestern commit led the team in scoring and rebounds in both of those games as a senior went for 24 and 32 points on a combined shooting effort of 18 of 34 while grabbing a total of 31 boards in the two contests. Trevor Silsiski, West Lion. The Class 2A top-ranked Wildcats were led in two stats by the senior 17 points and five assists in a dominant 73-46 win over Unity Christian on Friday. Silsiski also went for 12 points and 11 assists in an even more lopsided 103-37 victory over Sibley Shaded, in which West Lion amassed a 60-20 halftime lead. Alex Roth, Pender. The Pendragons are 10-3 this season and winners of four in a row after eking out a 35-33 win over state-ranked Wynott. Roth led Pender in points and rebounds with 13 and 8 while also going a team-best four steals. Carson Moret, Western Christian. The junior led the Class 2A second-ranked Wolfpack in scoring in two of its last three games as Western Christian won all three since suffering its lone loss of the season to Dakota Valley in a Baumgars Invitational Classic. Moret went for 25 points in a 100-77 victory over Worthington, Minnesota, then had a team-high 20 and a 10-point win over Sergeant Bluff Luton. Tristan Bevelheimer, Ponca. The Class C2 7th-ranked Indians remain unbeaten at 11-0, and the senior has scored in double figures in each of the Ponca's last three games in wins over Wakefield, Crofton, and Lawton-Bronson. Sam Schmeimel, Rems and St. Mary's. The Hawks are on writing a four-game win streak after hard-fought wins over Kingsley Pearson River Valley and George Little Rock, being the two most recent. Schmillen led the team in scoring in both of those games as the junior had 15 points on 6 of 9 shooting against KP with a team-high 7 rebounds before going for 13 points against GLR to lead the Hawks as they outscored the Mustangs 18-4 in the fourth quarter to snag the victory. Grayson Mulder, MMCRU The Royals handed Class 1A 10th-ranked South O'Brien his first loss of the season behind Mulder's 22 points. The sophomore also had seven rebounds, while Wyatt Alish had 13 points off the bench, and Michael Peterson went for nine points and a game-high 15 rebounds. Then Aiden Phillips, Walthill. The Class D to second-ranked Blue Jays edged Wakefield 46-42 to stay undefeated at 10-0. The team has four players averaging 10 or more points per game, led by Phillips, 16.4. That group also includes Ethan Parker, Keeson Cahoo, 
and Keith Morris. We'll now move to the girls. Jalen Merno Lamars, the Class 4A 7th-ranked Bulldogs, have won four straight since falling to Dakota Valley in overtime. The streak was kicked off by a victory over defending 3A state champ Sioux Center and continued with a win over MOC Floyd Valley in which Merno, a junior, hit the game-winning three at the buzzer to finish with a team-high 13 points. Sydney Doshet, Kingsley Pearson River Valley. Doshet had 21 points, 9 rebounds, 4 assists, 2 steals, and a black block for the Panthers as KPRV handed MVAOCOU his first loss of the season, 56-55 on Thursday. Hudson Ranchall, Sioux City East. The Class 5A 13th-ranked Black Raiders edged 4A 5th-ranked Mason City 49-45 on Saturday at the Target Center in Minneapolis. Ranchall led the winning effort with 14 points. Maya Dolliver and Avery Wegner from Pender. Dolliver, a junior, went over 1,000 career points last Thursday for the Class D 1 top-ranked Pendragons in 726 win over Lions Decatur Northeast as she led the team in scoring with 25 points and went for five steals and assists. In the 53-47 victory over Class C to Yucatan at the Nebraska Girls Basketball Showcase on Saturday in Kearney, Dolliver was named Offensive Player of the Game with 14 points, five assists, and five rebounds, while Wagner was tabbed as the Defensive Player of the Game. The senior Briarcliff commit went double-double in both games with 14, 15 points and 10 rebounds. And the next one is Melina Snoozy from Bishop Helan. I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to name the girls and not do the stats. Carmen D. Ricky of Remsen St. Mary's. Kaya Davis from Sioux City West. Brooke Jensen from Vermilion. Ashlyn Corvana from Hinton. And Brandy Crager from Sioux Central. And those are the 10 girls. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 9th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.